one of the things that we've picked up along the way in just different uh, different areas, one of the most common is in, as we've the little bit we've traveled is pocket guides. Um, we I have a stack of them here, and some of these are language, French. Eric, you can have something to do with that. I don't think I've ever cracked it open, so uh, I don't know how to pronounce any word, so it's kind of pointless to see what, how it's written. So, um, but uh, but we have I have other like devices, my computer. There's a little quick, you know, reference guide so you can see how the, you know the basic functions are, and I have. A pocket dictionary of theological terms. So instead of the big clunky one and uh, the, the weighty one, you can pull this down if you're just trying to remember. Oh, what does that? What does that mean? I remember that in theology class. Oh yeah, okay. There. So so we have all these pocket guides. I've got one for Bosnian van. Uh, so you can even pass this along to you this afternoon. I forgot I had this. It was uh, very helpful. And uh, so pocket guides. They, they're we, we, we don't probably carry them as often as maybe used to. And I mean, then they cover all kinds of things from travel to technology, first aid. There's pocket guides that are just kind of educational if you want to learn how to play chess or if you want to, uh, just learn the, about baseball and you, you're someone that doesn't know anything about baseball. There's a, no doubt a pocket guide that just kind of orients you to the game. But now we just have smartphones. So we all have, most of you have pocket guides and you just Google it. Um, but, but, Pocket guys, they, they don't tell you everything there is to know about their subject, but they, they hit the high points and the highest points. And, and so they're just this kind of quick reference guides, concise manuals to give you the basic but most important information about a topic or a place or, or whatever they're, they're, they're dealing with. And so in, in the Gospel of John, we've talked about this before, there are these seven what we call I am statements that Jesus makes. As he makes this claim about himself, we've seen one already, we'll see the second one today. And these seven I am statements are sort of a pocket guide to understanding Jesus. They don't tell us everything there is to know about Jesus, but they, they give us these just monumental truths that we were quickly oriented to understand who Christ is. And so we come again to the second of those today. And the first one we saw was back in John 6 and verse 35. I am the bread of life. And today, as has been mentioned already, we, we get in John 8 verse 12. I am the light of the world. And so this morning there's, there's two parts to the message. And the first part is that claim that Jesus makes. I am the light of the world. Then the second part of the message is going to be the response of his hearers to that claim. To the people that he's teaching. And so he makes this claim that he is the light of the world. And then he's quickly interrupted by this objection from the Pharisees. And so... The, the subject of light, you think that light is going to dominate the chapter, and it does, but it's in a more subtle way, as we'll see. But the, the, the word light, the subject of light, really never comes back up again the entire chapter. And so you think this is going to be dominant, but the, the chapter seems kind of like a detour. And we'll know, we know it's a God-ordained detour, but, but there's this back and forth throughout the chapter, the rest of the chapter, between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and, and the Jews in terms of the Jewish establishment. And it's very revealing. It, it, and, and it reveals Jesus as the light of the world, but it also reveals the darkness of the world that Jesus came into. 
And so we'll see both of those things. We'll see Jesus in, 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 in both parts of this sermon, but we'll see the darkness and the response of the people. So the first, first movement that we'll see, and it's just in verse 12, in that claim itself is, and I would just say it like this, let, let Jesus' astounding claim just sink deep into your soul this morning. I know the, this, this, these words, this passage, this verse is familiar to you. But don't let that familiarity just rob you from seeing the power of what Christ is claiming for himself here. And so try to brush that aside and just see it with fresh eyes this morning. I am the light of the world. And so remember the context. Here we are in John 8. The context, this is at the very close of the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and, or the Feast of Booze. And verse 20 indicates that Jesus was teaching in the treasury of the temple after this feast is kind of wound down. And so the treasury consisted of these 13 trumpet kind of shaped boxes, which is where the people gave their monetary offerings, uh, to the Lord and the temple there. And so you just have these 13, 13 boxes lined up. Everybody stops by the treasury. Everybody gives their offering. So people are constantly passing through the treasury of the temple. And it's located in this colonnade that was on the edge of the court of the women. So if you've, if, so the, the temple is made up of, of different courts and the, the court of the women. And so you have this, this colonnade and the court of women's not restricted just to women. So there were other people in there and passing through the court of the women. But what that was, was that was as far as women could go in the temple. They couldn't go beyond that, any closer to the inner sanctuary. And so, so the court was square. It was 200, about 233 feet on each side. So it was about 54,000 square feet in this court. So this large court, they estimate that it probably could have held up at its maximum capacity about 6,000 people, which sounds pretty crowded to me. But, uh, but nonetheless, it, and one of the important features about the court of the women was the light that was there. And so there were these four massive lamp stands, and, and so don't picture something on a table, but they were some 86 feet tall. It's about seven stories high. These four massive pillars that served as lamp stands in each of the corners of the court of the women. So they just towered over this court. And, and they, would, they would use the, the kind of the worn out priestly garments. And they, so the, there would be these bowls on top full of oil. And they would, they would make wicks out of kind of worn out priestly garments, and that's how they would burn these lamps on these high pillars. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, every night during the feast, they would light these lamps, these lampstands, and, and, the, and the light from them could be seen all over the city, and really for miles around. It was just this, this bright illuminating on the, here on the Temple Mount and shining all over the place. And, and, and so th- during the Feast of Tabernacles, people would gather at night and they would sing praises to the Lord, and the priests had dances they would do before the Lord, and all under the light in this court of the women. And the light was there, the significance of these lampstands. It was reminding God's people of how He was, how He had guided them and, and was faithful to them in their wilderness wanderings. Which remember, the Feast of the Tabernacles, that's what that's pointing back to. And so how God led them by, remember the, the uh, pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. And so this is recalling that. 
for God's people. And so, so this is, but what I want you to just get is the scene here. The, John is very specific outlining where Jesus is teaching in the temple, in the treasury. So Jesus is on this colonnade, looking out, under this colonnade, looking out over the court of women. And so he's looking out and up at these four massive lampstands. And, and so he, in, in plain sight of these, we're kind of like first century floodlights. That may still be burning. Remember, this is early morning hours, the day after the feast, whether they were still burning or they had been burning the night before for sure. In view of these, he possibly points at them and he makes this massive declaration and promise. Verse 12, I am the light of the world. Not the light of the temple, not the light of Jerusalem, not the light of Israel, of the whole world. It's just a huge claim. And then he goes on. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So you have this claim and you have this promise. Let's look at them one by one. So first the claim. I am the light of the world. And let me, let's just break that down. I've said this already, but let me just say it again. One, this means that the world is in darkness. The world is in darkness. I, when I think of darkness, I think of an experience I had as a teenager in a uh, Missouri cavern. And so, as Jeff Miller here today, Jeff, I see Lauren. Okay, but uh, but Jeff probably knows about those caverns along I forty four going through Missouri. There was all these billboards. This is every every state that has caverns. I don't know. Well, they have, they spend a lot of money on billboards because drive through Kentucky and there's every mile there's another billboard for this cavern. And so they build it up, but uh, we've stopped at a couple of these as I was growing up, and we have family in that area. But I remember we were going to a basketball camp in Indiana with a friend, and my mom was driving us up there. And we stopped at this cavern in somewhere in Missouri. And part of the during part of the tour, so it was this kind of little Jeep tour into this cavern, they got us in there, and we got out, and we could kind of walk around. And then they said they were going to turn the lights out. And so they gave us a warning. They said, don't. Don't don't move, and not that anybody was tempted to move once the lights were out, I assure you. But they turned the lights out, and it was dark. I mean, darker than I've ever seen before. Well, that's an oxymoron, I realize. Dark, dark. No light at all that was visible. This is pre-cell phone days, so I know you cheaters are like, does darkness even exist? You know, always have the glow of the screen to keep you light. No, no none of that. Just pitch black Dark, darkness like you can't experience above ground, and 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 I and it was eerie. I mean, it's that kind of darkness. It it feels oppressive. It's like the to borrow the language of Exodus. You can. It's a darkness that can be felt. It's just a unsettling feeling, and 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 so I, I mean, I couldn't wait for them to. Flip those lights back. I'm kind of claustrophobic. I'm not kind of claustrophobic. I'm very claustrophobic. I'm not sure that I want you to know that because this might be used against me. But uh, but the cavern was big. But when those lights came went out, man, I I I, I didn't like it. And and I thought I couldn't help but think how awful it would be to be lost in there without any light. I mean, it would drive me insane. And 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 so and I and I realize some of you know and some of you. Have, have close relationships with people who are blind, and so you know this. And particularly if you, if if you've became blind later in life, and that that feeling and the the 
fear of losing sight. I mean, that all of us, many of us think about. But, 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 but this is the imagery that Jesus is using here. Light, darkness. This is what I want to say. People in this world are walking in spiritual, moral darkness. I mean, dark darkness. They may not realize it, as Pat was alluding to, but th- this is the reality. And in and, and John 12, verse 35 she says, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Now, he's not just talking about a cave and physical darkness. He's talking about this spiritual darkness that characterizes this world. People in it. Just imagine trying to drive down I-75 blindfolded. I know it seems like that's what everybody's doing at some, some days. And you listen to the traffic reports. But, but, but without Jesus, people are... Going through life blindfolded, in a sense, in darkness. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what's ahead. They, they have, they, they're running straight for disaster and they have no clue. They don't realize it. And so that's the first thing. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, we need to understand the backdrop, and that is the world is in darkness. The second, kind of as we break that claim down, is that Jesus is the light. Definite article. The light. He's not merely a light or another light of many. He is the only light. And, 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 and this isn't the first time light has been used in John with reference to Jesus. And Pat mentioned this in, in, in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's over, overcome it. That's speaking of Jesus. Verse nine, John one: the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We saw it in John chapter three, verse nineteen. This is the judgment: the light has come into the world, and yet the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So, darkness is that symbol of sin and ignorance and. And, and judgment and death and the devil, that's how it's used in Scripture. And that's what characterizes the world and the people in their natural state. And yet Jesus is light. The exact opposite of darkness. Holiness. Understanding. Life. God. Deliverance. This is what, this is who Jesus is. He says He's the light. And He's not just the light. Third way we break this claim down is He's the light of the world. He's light for the whole world. And what does that mean? What does, it, what does He mean? Does, it, does that, that mean the whole world has light to see who Jesus really is? Is that the whole world is enlightened, we would say? No, not yet. A day is coming. We're told, but but many, most in the world, don't follow Jesus, and so they remain in darkness. But here he says, Jesus is the light of the world. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus being light of the world means that the world has no other light than Him. That's what He's saying. If there's going to be light for the world, it's going to be Jesus. It's Jesus or darkness. There is no third option for the world. And so therefore all the world, everyone in it needs Christ as their light. And this is what they were made for. To, and and we were, they were made for this light. But, so that's this claim. So Jesus says, this is the claim. I am, I am the light of the world. And then based upon that claim, there is this incredible promise. Really it's an invitation that's extended to everybody. 
And it's this, is whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I mean, that is a promise you can stake your life upon, friends. This is not the kind of promises that we're flooded with right now during this election cycle. I mean, we have all these ear-tickling promises that are that are pushed around, and but come November, they will all just kind of come to nothing. This is this is a promise that's true, and it's enduring. It's 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 permanent. It's and it's life changing. There's nothing those in darkness need more than light. We were born spiritually blind and dead. This is how Scripture speaks of our condition. And yet with Jesus, there is light and life. And I would just ask you this morning: Are are you still walking in darkness? Again, you may have come in thinking, what, you wouldn't even cross your mind to think in those categories. But as we're talking right now, you think of your life and you think, it's darkness. I don't see. I don't see clearly. There is there's this sin that just consumes me. There's this, this condemnation. There's this, there's this blindness. This sense of judgment and wrong. And Are you walking in darkness? The good news is you don't have to any longer. I mean, there were people that walked into the temple that day that were maybe just like you walked into this room today and they they had no thought of being in darkness and yet they were. They were in darkness and then they heard Jesus teach and we're going to see in verse 30 that they believed in Him and suddenly they had light and life. And you, again, you could have walked into this room this morning with no thought and you just thinking about what you're going to have for lunch afterwards. And, and, and here you came in though, and now you realize this, I'm in darkness. But you don't have to leave that way. I mean, you may have started the sermon in darkness, but you can leave and it can end and you can be in the light. This is possible. And it happened then, it can happen this morning. Let me pray. Let me just stop and pray right now. God, I pray, as Pat alluded to that passage in 2 Corinthians, Lord, we know that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, really seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God and Jesus Christ. And so there are probably some who came in here this morning who, who are blinded to the truth of Jesus, blinded even to their own condition. But when Christ is preached, Paul says that the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, He can shine into our hearts, Lord, this morning and give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I pray and ask God that You would do it. If there are any here who are still in darkness, God, shine light. Bring them to faith in Jesus Christ this morning that they will leave here changed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And for those of us who have already experienced that, this this reminds us, and even as we come to the table in in just a moment, we're not done yet, so don't get too excited. But it's just just a good thanks to God for God's scale-removing work from our eyes. Let's just sing. We're going to do kind of impromptu things. But just amazing grace. You know the words. It's the only song we all know. So, but... Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once 
once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Amen. We were blind, but we see. And it's this light of the world that's done this. So Jesus has made this claim. And then we have this extended discussion, this back and forth between Jesus and these Pharisees and these Jews. And it's a very revealing discussion. And that's what light does. It reveals. Jesus reveals himself in this back and forth. He makes further claims about himself. And many of these we've heard before, but he just builds on them. And then he also, it's, it's revealing of the extent of darkness that characterizes this world. And so, that's what we're going to see. So Jesus has already told us, he told us in John 3, how people would respond to the light. They will not generally come to it that, because their deeds are evil. And, but here we, we get this front row seat, this view from the front row, and actually seeing it. Not just told about it, but we get to see it. And that we've lived it because all of us are born repelling, repelled against the light. But, but here we get to see it in John 8. And so some come to Jesus, some believe Him, some trust Him, follow Him. We'll see that in verse 30. Most do not. Some have the light of life. Others continue to walk in darkness. So, so that's the second kind of movement in the psalm. We have the response of the people. And I would just say it like this. is Let their divided response compel you to choose life today. So they, they divide. Most choose darkness, but, but some believe. And so just as we observe the different responses to Jesus, let it compel you to choose life, to choose light today. So Jesus makes this massive claim, I am the light of the world, but he's quickly interrupted. And as you read through John 8, it seems like, and I mean, we weren't there, we don't have this video of, and the audio from this encounter, but it seems like they just keep interrupting him. I mean, I counted as many as ten interruptions of Jesus. Jesus starts going down one road, and they stop him, and, he, they, and then he has to deal with that. And, and so, it's just this back and forth, and... So, but when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's choosing his words very carefully. That little phrase, I am, in the Greek it's ego, a me. And that's a, that's a powerful little two word phrase. And it's make, it's pointing to this massive connection that exists as, as Jesus is with those two little words, he's pointing to that Old Testament name for God, Exodus 3. To Moses, he is the great I am. That's what you shall call me before the people. The I am has sent you. It's a name for God. And so throughout this chapter, Jesus is going to keep pushing this until it comes to a head at the end of the chapter. And we'll see this in next week or the week after. But, but verse 24, just scan down real quick. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, and on the ESV it says, unless you believe that I am He, that He is not in the original. That's something that the, the translators have added. It just says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Again, He is added there. Then you get all the way down to verse 56 and through 59. Verse 56. And this is where it really comes to a point. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said, now Abraham's been dead for generations. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And you, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, what are you talking about? I'm only 33, you know. I don't know. No, he didn't say that. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They get it that time. Because look at their response. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted to kill him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So this is not just... Just like you'd say, well, I'm, you know, you're boastful, I'm good at something or something. Jesus is being very careful in choosing these words. I am. And so, but they're, they're beginning to sense this. And so what gives Jesus the right to make these audacious claims? What authority does he have to say this? And this is what starts all of these objections and interruptions from the Pharisees. But again, one of the things that this back and forth will reveal is this the suffocating darkness of unbelief. And so there's two choices, two ways to respond to the light of the world. And the first one is this, is, and the first way that many choose is most choose to remain in darkness. And that's what we see with these religious leaders. And there's two, two prominent features that we'll, we'll see of those who, who, who remain in darkness, who walk in darkness, and it's ignorance and arrogance. And we'll see these throughout this interchange here. Ignorance and arrogance. Watch for them. First, let's look at the ignorance of the darkened soul. The ignorance of the darkened soul. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And what are they talking about here? They're, they're pointing to something that Jesus said earlier. Remember back in John chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said, If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And so the Pharisees are taking that in the strictest sense, and there's, Jesus has just said, I am the light of the world. And they say, wait a second, you said, if, if, if you're the only one bearing witness, your testimony is not true, which is also what the law says, so, so that, you're, you're a false witness. You're, you're, you're telling lies. Your claims don't hold up. And, 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 and they, so they rip this out of context. They, they totally ignore all of the witnesses that God has given concerning Jesus. They ignore the witness of John the Baptist. They ignore, ignore the Father's voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They ignore the witness of the miracles and signs. They ignore the witness of the Scriptures and all that's being fulfilled through Jesus' ministry. But they're all up in Jesus' face and they're accusing Him of, of contradicting himself and saying your, your testimony isn't true because there's no witness to corroborate it. So Jesus replies to their ignorance in verse 14. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Why? Because I know who I am. For I know where I come from. I know where I'm going. But you do not know. Ignorance. You do not know where I come from or where I am going. They don't know. He does know. And the reality is Jesus didn't need another witness. He's utterly unique. There's a bumper sticker that you'll see sometimes and that people put on there. and Well-meaning, and so if you have this, don't, don't go rip it off. feel like you got to. But God said it. I believe it. That settles it. 
And I understand what they're trying to communicate, but that could be shortened. Just say, God said it, that settles it. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. God doesn't need my, the validation of my faith in what He's communicating in His testimony to settle it. If He says it, it's true. doesn't matter how I respond. And so it's settled. And, and so this is true for Jesus. It, it, it doesn't need another witness. There are other witnesses, but he doesn't need one. And, but you see, again, this is the darkened soul. They, they do not know. They, they're ignorant of the truth, what's right in front of their eyes. Not because of a lack of education. It doesn't because they have some low IQ. It's not because Jesus wasn't a clear enough teacher and so... You know, if Jesus just explained things better, they could have seen it. No, this is ignorance. This is willful ignorance. Willful ignorance. Verse 15, he, he unmasks this even further, their ignorance. You judge according to the flesh. You judge by external appearance. It's, it's incomplete. You, you lack knowledge. You're ignorant in your judgment. And he says, I judge no one. And that's an elliptical phrase. What he means is, I judge no one that way. It's not how I judge. Yet even if I do judge, verse 16, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now we read this and, and, and we obviously know in light of the rest of the scripture who Jesus is referring to when he speaks of his father. He's talking about God, his heavenly father. That's who he's talking about. But put yourself in the shoes of those first hearers and they're not clued in. Again, they're ignorant of the truth. Just as we would be. They're scratching their heads when he says this and they're trying to figure this out. Your father sent you here and your father backs up your witness. He agrees with the testimony and you give and he testifies about you. Who are you talking about? Joseph? Who, who is he to back up your testimony? Who's your daddy, Jesus? Who is he? And this is what he said, verse 90, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He's going to say something very similar later. Because they're going to, they're going to appeal, to the, the, the Jews, the, the leaders are going to appeal to be children of God. And, and Jesus is going to address them and say, you don't know the Father. Because if you knew the Father, you would know His Son. So, it doesn't hold up. And I would just say, there are millions, billions of people in this world who claim to be children of God. Who claim to have God as their Father. But, but they reject God's Son. And, and what Jesus is saying, you cannot truly know God as your Father when you reject His Son, Jesus. And you can't know the Son when you reject the Father. Their testimony is one. The, the, the Son gives witness to the Father. The Father gives witness to the Son. This is what He's communicating. And then verse 20, these words He spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, but no one arrested Him because His hour had not yet come. His hour, His hour, that hour of death, the, the darkest hour and the finest hour of Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't His hour. It wasn't God's timing yet. The authorities, therefore, couldn't touch Him. That doesn't mean that Jesus had some kind of invisible force field around Him and they were, you know, trying to get Him with swords and it just bounced off or something like that. 
is that God God orchestrated the circumstances and He He just blocked them at every every plan they came up with was foiled. It just wasn't God in His providence just prevented him from being taken because it wasn't His hour. Despite their rejection, despite their hatred and scorn of Jesus, despite their their unwillingness to accept his claims. They, they can't stop him. I mean, here he is in public. He's in the temple. He's in there. He's got, they have home court advantage here. Jesus is right there in the open where people are all around passing by. They could take him. But they can't take him because it's not his hour. Jesus is in control. <laughs> but what we see, again, what's revealed of, of those who walk in darkness is is. One of the features is ignorance. They, they, they just, they don't see it. They don't know. You can be cultured. You can be educated. You can travel the world. You can, can, can be all those things. And, and yet if you're not following Christ, you're in darkness. Darkness. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how religious you are. How moral you are. How, how prosperous you are. You can still be blinded to the truth of Christ. And all of us were until the Lord graciously opened our eyes. So so there's the ignorance of the darkened soul. The other feature of, of those who walk in darkness is arrogance. And so we see the arrogance of a darkened soul. Last night, uh, uh, three of our kids and I went up to McCurry Park. They, they had balloons overfed. If you tried to drive down 54, whether you knew what was going on or not, you you realize something was going on because it was a madhouse. There was traffic like crazy. And I, I thought it was going to be a couple hundred people and a few balloons and we'd just walk up and, you know, check them out. I mean, there were thousands of people up there. and and so, But we went up there and we didn't even get in because the line was so long. I didn't have time to, to, to that much time. And and so, but but we stood outside of the fence and looked at, there were five big hot air balloons. And, and they are impressive as you get up closer to them and, and we weren't right underneath them, but they were, they're big and they're majestic looking. These, these massive balloons. But what are they? They're full of hot air. <laughs> it's just air. I mean, when, they, when they're flattened out, if they don't keep blowing that hot air up there, they, they flatten out and they can fold them up and they can fit them in the back of their Ford Explorer. I mean, they're just, they're just, it's just fabric and, and air. I mean, this is the, this is the Pharisees. This is, this is those who walk in darkness. This is arrogance. They, 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 but the Pharisees, particularly, they prided themselves in their appearance of being righteous and religious and, 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 and loving and worshiping God and, 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 and they were too big to fail. They, they were so confident in, this, in themselves as being in this right standing with God, but it was hot air. It was all hot air. They, 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 though they made big claims of loving God and obeying God and following God and worshiping God, it was just empty talk. And Jesus is pointing to this because they would not believe, they would not obey, they would not follow Jesus, God's Son. Son, that the God that professed to worship sent into this world for their salvation, they rejected Him. And out of arrogance, out of ignorance. Verse 22, or 21, excuse me. So He said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek Me, but you, and you will, excuse me, I'm going away and you will seek Me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. That's a, that's a hard statement. But we'll see, it's a gracious statement. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself? 
You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna kill yourself, Jesus, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, what is that? Where does that come from? What's going on? Well, let me just say, this response to Jesus by the Pharisees, it, it just drips with sarcasm and self-righteous pride. That's what's behind this. Because the Pharisees believed that suicide was the one thing that sent you to the deepest region of hell. The lowest place. There was a special spot reserved for you of torment for those that killed themselves. So their grim and smug response to Jesus is, of course we're never going to go where you go. Because because we, we can never follow you there. If that's where you're going to go, you're right. We, we, we can't follow you there. And it's, it's his pride saying we would never. We, 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 have, we couldn't get close to that place because of who we are. This is, this is it. They're, but the reality is, as Jesus is going to say, that's exactly where they're headed because of their rejection of Jesus. It's hell. And listen how he, how he carefully and yet straightforwardly Jesus answers them. Verse 23, He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I mean, that's the bottom line. And then, verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. (laughs) You see how ignorant they are, how arrogant they are. But what I want you to see is how gracious and faithful Jesus is to these men. Don't don't read some angry, bitter, retaliatory, condemning voice in the, our Lord here. I think this is an earnest appeal to these men. And their blindness, he's pleading, don't, you're going to die. Everybody is. And you will die in your sin unless you lay hold of the provision that God has made for you. But they in their pride, they reject this word because they thought they were good enough already. They didn't need him. They didn't need anything. And just, just listen. Hear, hear this careful warning, friends. That, that when the Bible speaks of death, it speaks of it in two ways. For the, for the Christian, the one who's trusted in Christ, their death is seen in Scripture as precious in the sight of God. And it's said of them that when they pass, they die in faith or they die in the Lord. And for all those who die in the Lord, God has prepared a place for them before the foundation of the world. And they, that they go to that place. And so that's one way. But the only other way to die is to die in your sins. And the Bible makes it clear that we're all sinners. So it's not that, that we uh, suddenly, the, the moment we trust Christ, we're no longer sinners. No, we continue to sin. But when the Bible talks like that, and uh, being in sin or in faith, it's talking about the state of our souls before God. How we stand before God. And, and a person who has faith, or, or who has no faith, the unbeliever remains in their sin. And the worst possible tragedy that could befall a human being is to die in that state. It's eternal judgment. Eternal punishment. I know that may sound fanciful and that cannot be true. It's, it's just God's word. It's true. I don't say this to frighten you, but I say this to sober you up. And there are no doubt people in this room this morning listening maybe over the internet that will download this sermon just in God's providence and, and, and you are still in your sins. 
And, and, and if you don't come to Christ, you may die in your sins. You will die in your sins. But there's wonderful news. No one has to. No one has to die in their sin. Because there is a sinless one who died for our sins. That we may die in the Lord in faith. And so I just if you've not trusted Christ, I again I urge you, trust Him today. Today you can leave this place changed. And yet for the believer, it's cause for thanksgiving, and which is what we'll do in a moment. And so so this so clearly Jesus, the seriousness of what Jesus says just kind of startles him. And so they ask, Who are you? His reply, verse twenty five, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. He said, I've been telling you all along. This is nothing new. And he has. Verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And then verse 27, they did not understand the ignorance. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. It looks hopeless, doesn't it? I mean, this, this ignorance, it's blocking the minds of these men. It just can't sink in the truth. And, and this arrogance, this pride, it's blinding their eyes, keeping them from responding to Christ and faith. But we don't stop reading. There's this wonderful little paragraph here. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, that's referring to the cross, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And so, so in the darkness of, in, in the darkness that's going to engulf the whole world during the crucifixion, that, that the light of God's perfect salvation will shine in all of its brilliance. That doesn't mean that all of these opponents of Jesus were instantly became believers in Jesus. But what he's saying is that the death and resurrection of Christ stands for all eternity as this witness to who Jesus is. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Redeemer of man. He is the forgiver of sins. He is the cleanser of shame. And so, while Jesus uttered these words, look at verse 30. As He was saying these things, many Believed in Him. Most chose to remain in darkness, but some choose to come to the light. We have. Many of us have. Those who, have, those who believed then, verse 30, those who believe today, there's this instantaneous change. It's like walking out of that dark darkness of a cavern into the light of the morning of a summer morning above ground. That's what it's like. Everything changes. And what makes the difference is the cross. That's the cross. What Jesus was pointing forward to then, we look back to in remembrance now. So when you remember the cross, you, you see the awful reality of human depravity, of the terrible evil, evil that lurks in every human heart, and it's there. But you also see the love of God written in big, bold, beautiful letters. The God who, who, who gave His only Son, who spared not His only Son, but, but gave Himself up for us. How much will He also freely give us all things, Paul says. And so we, we sang a moment ago, near the cross. And there's a line in there that I was just thinking of this morning. It's, it's near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. 
as we come to the table and as we end this morning, just, just let that, let the scenes of Calvary, let the scenes of what Christ has done come before you. It's good to keep those before us. It's good to keep the shadows of Gethsemane before us. It's good to keep the darkness of his loneliness, his prayers, his, his disappointment with his disciples, his sweat drops of blood that fell from his brow, the traitor's kiss, the binding, the blows on his face, the scourging, the spitting, the beating, the stripping, the mocking, the crown of thorns, the sorrowful way through the streets, the burden of the cross, the exhaustion he endured, the, the collapse, the impaling on the cross, the nails in his hands, the ridicule of his enemies, the abandonment by his friends, the hours on the cross, the darkness, the terrible cry from his lips, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The thirst, and then that final triumphant cry, It is finished. Let's pray. Lord, do bring bring this, these scenes before us, Lord, that we would see the Son of Man lifted up and we would see the truth of who Jesus is. And if there's anyone here who who's yet still remains in darkness, I pray that you would open their eyes to see. And for all of us who know Christ, who, have, who walk in the light now and not in darkness, who have the light of life, what a gift. No matter what goes on, no matter what circumstances, no matter how hard life gets, we have the light of life. That's a promise. It's a certainty that cannot be taken away. I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy as we come and remember the body and broken body of Christ, broken the blood of Christ spilt on our behalf. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.